So why don't we grab out our Bibles, we're going to turn with enthusiasm and passion and excitement because this is the word of the Lord to Acts 19, picking up our series. We're now in Ephesus, we're going to be reading from chapter 19, verse 8, and I did, I should mention by way of introduction, after our comments about haircuts last week, I did think to myself that I may well brave the barbershop and try and uh, do something with the, the lockdown hairstyle. And then I saw a few uh, posts, pictures that were posted of the queues. I don't know whether you saw them outside the, the barbershops. Of course, you can't book in, and some of the queues were outside the door, around the block, and halfway to Sydney. I think it's a good thing they've opened up the borders. So uh, it is the, the season we're now in as things open up, and I may well progress to my haircut in due course, as the Lord leads, as the Spirit leads. But why don't I pray for us, and then we're going to launch into what I feel is just stirring on my heart for us this morning. So, Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the glory, the grace, the majesty that we see as we turn our eyes to you. And I thank you for a moment in the midst of what's been a season in many ways of chaos and confusion and distractions and distortions. I thank you for this moment, for this opportunity to fix our eyes, heaven to behold the majesty and the wonder of who you are. Lord, remind us of your beauty. Remind us of the greatness of your love. Would our hearts ever be captured, ever be resonating, ever be on fire with a flame of burning love and desire for the one who first loved us. May we see you more clearly. May we love you more deeply this morning, we pray. Use this time that we spend together, these words that we read, Accomplish all that you desire for the glory of your name. May it be spread forth as a fragrance into a world that so desperately needs you, whether they admit it or not, whether they know it or not. The ultimate need of every human soul, above all else, is the knowledge of the glory of God that we find revealed in Christ Jesus. We pray all these things. Help us, help me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are in Acts 19, and this brings us to the third missionary journey of Paul begins in Ephesus. And we saw last week a very interesting introduction as Paul arrives in this particular area. And it's fascinating to me because for those who remember back to Acts 16, this was an area, a part of the world that just a few chapters earlier, the Holy Spirit specifically um, prohibited Paul, stopped it, says it opposed him from entering into. He was ready. He, he was commissioned. He knew what God had called him to do. He was ready to go into Asia, what uh, is called Asia, which is really Asia, Asia Minor at that uh, particular time in, in history. But the Lord said, no, you're to go elsewhere. And he spent some years traveling, proclaiming the gospel in different places. And he's come back here. And not only is the Lord allowed him to come in, but we see this divine moment in the Lord. You know, he is a moment of the God of those Kairos moments. And when it's a moment of the Lord, you know, things happen. I'm so thankful for those breakthrough moments. And this is one of, personally, my favorite portions in this book. And I know I've said that dozens of times because it's all good. But this is yet another one of those moments. And it is, I would suggest, as we read it, this in encounter... Um, this account that stirs faith in our hearts, for me anyway, it gives me this greater sense of expectancy as to, to who the Lord is and what he can do 
through yielded hearts. And really, this is probably the best picture I can find in the book of Acts of what revival looks like. It's a term that we, we kind of banty around, and for some, the term revival it brings great excitement. For others, it probably brings a little bit of baggage with it because it's used in many not always positive contexts and ways. But I want to examine what I believe is this wonderful picture of revival. We see it biblically, and then I want to quickly hopefully stir and encourage our hearts about what we can take away in our lives, in our time, in our era from this account that we read. So by way of review, Paul has come to Ephesus. We know there's some believers, there's not many believing people. He comes across 12 believers, and the first question he asks them, this is from last week, he says, there's something missing clearly. He says, have you received the Holy Spirit? He thought they were believers. They, they thought they were, were believers. They said, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And then they get baptized in the Holy Spirit. And we see this pattern throughout the book of Acts, book of Acts this proclamation, this response of repentance. We see the, the urgency and the need for water baptism as the outward proclamation of the the inward transformation, and we see, of course, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, all of which are important tenets, all of which we could do a series on, and I'm resisting the urge because there'd be some wonderful sermon series we could do there, and I think we're going to have to come back and fill in some of the blanks, but I do want to move on, as I've indicated, and really look at this account of what God does through Paul uh, in Asia Minor, in Asia, as we read in Scriptures based in the town of Ephesus. So there's this, there's this recalibration, this reconnection, these people who believe, but there was no evidence of the Holy Spirit. And that's our introduction to Ephesus. And we read on, it says in verse 8, there's 12 men, we just read that. And he being Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way that's a phrase we haven't covered, but it was a, a commonly used expression to talk about the believers, the way, the one true way, the one who is the way, the truth and the life, evil of, of um, the doctrine he was proclaiming about Jesus Christ, we could say before the congregation. He withdrew from them and took the disciples, those who had believed, put their faith in Christ with them, and continued to reason or to preach and teach daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, which by the way, as a, as a little trivia note, is the longest that he ever stayed in any particular town during his missionary journey. So there's something significant about what God's about to do. And catch this. For two years, it says, so that all the residents of Asia hear the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Such impact that the gospel, that the good news, the message that Paul came to proclaim it was spread throughout the entire region of Asia, or as I said, Asia Minor. Now, let's pause there for a moment. I want us to grab two things before we move on, because we're going to find some more details about exactly what the Lord did during this time. I want us to see, first of all, two things. Number one is the intent. I want, I want us to, to not lose sight of the intent of Paul. There's one ancient Greek man, manuscript that actually adds a comment here talking about Paul's teaching, and it says, in that particular comment that he taught daily from the hours of 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Some suggest it might have even been longer, but he taught everyday scriptures, say, for three or four hours. It's in the middle of the day, 
because it was quite common practice in that part of the world at that time that you would work in the morning and then you'd pause at lunchtime for a uh, sabbatical, for a rest period, and then you would uh, work again in the evening, which is probably why he was able to rent this particular hall. It was used for, we don't know what purpose, but some purpose, presumably in the morning and the evening, and he was able to rent it in the, the hottest period of the day. And there's this picture of Paul, like, just catch his intensity, catch, you know, catch his conviction. He says later in chapter 20, as he looks back at this time, that, that he worked, that he never took money from anybody. He worked to provide. So, you know, the picture here is a man who worked a day job in the morning. He came every day for three, four hours in the, the heat of the, the noonday sun. He preached and proclaimed the gospel. Uh, we'll read in a moment about his, his apron and his handkerchiefs, which literally were the, the garments that he would have, he would have uh, worked with. So he's been working, slaving away all morning. He's come literally in his, his high-vis or his suit and tie, whatever it might be, and preached for three hours, and presumably gone back to work again. Like, this is a guy of undeniable conviction, this faith that just propelled him forward. And we're going to look at just the, the undeniable sovereignty of God. And I want us to grab a hold of that this morning. But before we get there, just pause for a moment and reflect on this undeniable intent, this conviction, the zeal of the man who came for no reward with no other intention other than I'm here to preach the good news. Every day, I'm just here to tell people about Jesus in the hope that somebody might come to saving faith in him. So the intent, but I want us to catch as well the impact. I mean, we cannot overstate the impact of Paul's ministry. He was forbid to go to this area. The moment he does in the Lord's sovereign time, just a wide open door presents itself so that everybody in the area, and a lot of historians, they, they like to do um, throw around some numbers. We don't quite know exactly how many people were there, but it's certainly in the vicinity of 8 to 15 million people in this particular part of the world. And what is undeniable, and there's many researchers who've tracked this, the explosion of Christianity in an area in a part of the world where there was very few, if any, believers. We've come across a dozen, so there were some who believed at least in some fashion, but there was no established churches to the best of our knowledge, no real Christian presence. And not only over the two years that are here, but over the next 50, some attract the next 100 years, this explosion of Christianity, an unreached, ungodly area, becomes the Bible belt of the world through this two-year preaching impact that Paul, uh, that the, the Lord has through Paul as he just proclaims the gospel. So let's look then at exactly what it looked like. That's the bigger picture, this intent, this impact. How did this come about? How is it? that the Lord used Paul with such great impact. What, what did it look like? Well, this is what it looked like. It says in verse 11, And God was doing extraordinary miracles. I love that phrase there. So this is not just the ordinary ones. Most of us would be happy with the ordinary ones. These are the extraordinary miracles. So there's miracles and there's signs and wonders by the hands of Paul. I want us to notice that distinction. This is not... Paul, he never claimed to do the miracles of his own strength. This is the Lord's sovereign work through him. Extraordinary miracles so that even handkerchiefs or aprons, as I said, don't think of you know, the hankies in the sense that we think, tucked in your, your pocket, used for certain purposes, or the aprons that you use in the kitchen. This is more than likely his work garments. He's been slaving away. They're covered in sweat. And 
the, the people as he's preaching, I mean, he doesn't give, you know, that we read anyway, permission for this to happen, but people are grabbing his garments. He's so full of the power of God that the sweat cloths, that his work clothes, his, his, high, his, his work boots, they're grabbing the boots and there's incredible miracles that are coming forth even from the clothes that had been on his body. It says, even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. So there is clearly signs, wonders, and miracles. Now, we've got to admit as we read this count that it does sound like some sort of a, a carnival atmosphere, but I think it's worth us noting, remember, this was not Paul's emphasis or purpose. He didn't come here and set up a, a tent of meetings, specifically a tent of miracles. He was certainly not selling prayer cloths and his anointed garments. He wasn't asking for uh, donations of money for particular miracles or answers to prayer requests, as we still see today, often under the name of revival. Many people who pretend, many charlatans, many pretenders would use that for their own gain. No, nothing was like that in this picture. This was the true gospel and the true power of God at work, where the truth was proclaimed with boldness, but it was confirmed with power and signs and wonders. And I make that statement for this reason. I think so often we err on one side of the fence or the other. Either we make too much of signs and wonders and use it for the wrong purpose, perhaps our own gain, as I've alluded to, or at times we make too little of it. And here is what I land. You see, for, for Paul, this was never his, and, and for the early apostles and disciples we see, it was, it was never their purpose. That wasn't their mission to go and spread miracles. But it certainly at times was not only present, but it was their prayer. In Acts 4.29, the disciples gather together and they say this in the, in the context of the opposition that was coming against them. They say, Lord, look upon the threats that are around us and grant to your, your servants boldness to continue to speak your word. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And of course, just to back up the prayer, just in case we think, well, it was, you know, it's a suspicious prayer. It's not really legitimate. It says in verse 31, and when they prayed, the place where they gathered was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word with boldness. And so that's my heart as we read that first part of the account. We see this account and testimony of great miracles. That's not our purpose, but it should be our prayer. Lord, fill us with boldness and confirm the word that you're sending us forth to preach with signs, wonders, and miracles. And I don't care what it looks like. What, whatever form that might take, if it's a still small voice, if it's the peace of, you know, the, the power and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, if it's the mighty rushing wind, if it's people acting like they're, they're drunk at noonday or in the morning because the power of God is evident. It's, it's not the signs we're after, but it's that desire for him to confirm his word in whatever way he desires. should never become our purpose. We don't want to be distracted as so many people are chasing signs and wonders, but it should be our prayer. Yeah? We move on. So the, that's the first thing, the first marker is this extraordinary miracles. Amazing. And then this is interesting. There's one of the more, the more colorful accounts in the book of Acts and in the scriptures. And it says in verse 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists. So these are not believers. These are a, a, a people in the world outside the Christian faith. They see what's going on. 
And it says they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. They see what's going on, and like so often people do, they're like, oh, maybe, maybe we can use this to our own benefit. Maybe we can manipulate this to, to serve our own desires. So they, they cast or attempt to cast out spirits in the name of that, you know, that guy that what we've seen, that guy that Jesus is preaching, you know, what, what he's doing, you know, we're just going to take a bit and use that for our own purposes. Of course, it doesn't go well. It says the evil spirit in verse 15 answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? There's a whole sermon we could launch in there about spiritual authority and, you know, do the demons, do they, well, they certainly tremble when they hear the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but do they, do they recognize the power of God in us? But we'll move on. And it says, the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered them all, literally beat them up, overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You can just imagine this scene. All this stuff's happening on and all of a sudden there's some naked Jewish exorcist running down the street beaten up. What on earth is happening? It says, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greek, and fear fell upon them and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Pause there for a moment. You see, it's, it's interesting to me that wherever there is this move of the Spirit, not only is there a sense of signs, wonders, and miracles which we pray for, but there's also other stuff that is not the Lord. There's always an element, if you like, of flesh. And sometimes the biggest criticism that people, well, we don't want revival because in revival, weird things happen. All of a sudden, people are running naked down the street. So we don't want anything. that We just, we just want to keep the status quo. We don't want any of that. Can I make two observations? Number one is, yes, we want to avoid flesh, but flesh, if you like, that fleshliness, that taking um, of for our own intention, our own desires, is present whether the Lord is obviously moving or not. Now, whether it's naked Jewish exorcists running down the street, whether it's the, the hype and uh, you know, the noise and the lights and the fleshliness in that, so whether, whether it's our religiousness, you know, the greatest example of flesh, if you like, as Jesus came and walked the planet, was in those who had made a religion, something that they'd taken and, and twisted and thwarted to serve their own purposes rather than denying the true essence of what religion and faith should have been, which was relationship with Jesus. So there's, there's always flesh, regardless of whether we see it in certain ways, which can hold people off. And number two, just because there's some weird things going on doesn't mean we throw the whole thing out. You know, I'm praying that we see a revival. I am in our country, in our church, not just in our church, all around the world. I'm praying that we genuinely see, and this is where we're heading towards this morning, a stirring in our hearts to see that. And we should expect that there will be some weird and wonderful things. And we've got to be okay with that. We certainly are not encouraging that. But there, there is that sense in which when God's moving, we can expect to see some things. I'm hoping it's not naked exorcists running down the street, but I'm just putting that out as an example of what happened in this particular account. What we do want to see, so we, we, we don't want to see that, but we also don't want to discount everything because there's a bit of weird stuff coming over. Here's what we do want to see, and I love this. What are we looking for? What are the true signs that this is a work of God and not just a work 
of flesh. And it says in verse 18, and many of those who were now believers. So people have come to faith in Christ. What is the evidence of it? It says they came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts bought their books together. They burnt them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. What is that? People are genuinely moved. There's genuine conviction of their sin. There's genuine repentance, and there's the fruit of the repentance. In this case, there's literally a burning of all this stuff that they knew was ungodly and not right. And I won't attempt to even put a a figure on this value, but it was a huge amount of uh, products, of of, of everything that the Lord had convicted them of that they bought as that that, um, outward sign of the inward change that they had experienced in their life. There was genuine conviction, genuine humility, genuine repentance. And I would say you strip back the heart, you strip back the light, you strip back the the religion, you you strip back everything. That's what you should find. That's the evidence evidence of something that is genuinely God and not just a work of the flesh, is that fruit of repentance. Think of examples of, say, the Welsh revivals in the, the, the turn of the, the 19th century, early 1900s. And one of the, the major markers was this sense of repentance, not only in the church, but it was said that you'd pull up literally in certain ports and, and harbors, and the, the presence of God was over the region to such a degree that people would arrive in town under this weight of conviction. They didn't even wait to find a church. They went to the police station. They went to anyone they could find. How do I get right with God? How do I get saved? You know, that is the evidence that we're after of a genuine revival and a genuine move of the Lord. Is the gospel being proclaimed? Is there the fruits of repentance that are coming forth in the hearts and the lives of people? Is the beauty of Jesus being extolled? People being drawn to the majesty of who he is. So that's the account. And I want to quickly give us three ways, and I promise they'll be quick this morning, but they're really important, and this really is stirring in my heart for us to believe for, to press in for. Three realities as we read this account, and it's amazing. God used Paul mightily, mightily, powerfully. He literally turned that area of the world upside down. And there's three things that as we read that account, I'm praying will stir our hearts. Number one is simply this. First of all, that we would recognize our need. That we'd recognize our need. See, here is Paul, and we've talked about this man who was undeniably an incredible individual. His zeal, his passion, his perseverance, his brilliance, many would say it's, it's unmatched, it's unrivaled. He was an incredible individual. But you know what? The Lord didn't call Paul and say, Righto, Paul, I've made you very special, so go and proclaim the gospel, and you have all you need. All, all you need is you. Just, just preach and proclaim You need nothing else. You'll be fine ministering under your own steam. See, what we've read here, and I've said it already, is there's this undeniable zeal of Paul, and we'll talk about it in a few moments, but there's this undeniable sovereignty of the Lord. Paul didn't always have this kind of response, did he? He was kicked out. He was persecuted. He he preached to the who's who in, in Corinth and had very little response, we believe, from his message, but there was those moments where God came upon him and used him in incredible ways. 
And there's been, I hope we've caught it, this reality since the beginning of the book of Acts, and we'll see it right the way through to the end. As it began with Jesus saying to his disciples, just wait and tarry. I've been with you, I've taught you, I've encouraged you for three years, but it's not enough in and of itself. There's something you need. It's the power of the Holy Spirit to infill and to enliven and embolden you to accomplish what I've called you to. It's the same with the, the Holy Spirit, you know, poured out on the Gentiles, Peter and Cornelius again, and now decades. We're 20 years down the track, and the same reality is just as real as it is, I believe, now 2,000 years down the track. It's us as God's people coming back to that place where we recognize our need. There is a response, and we'll talk about that in a moment, but there is first and foremost a need. We need what I alone cannot give and bring, what we as a church cannot give and bring, what the church in general cannot without his power and his presence. If we do not have his power and presence, we have nothing that is truly of value and worth. But if we have his presence, then we have everything we need. And he's the God who uses just the loaves and fishes, the humble offering to cause great, incredible, miraculous things to be done for his glory. You know, I said this last week, but let me make it clear. One thing the Lord continues to remind me, and I used the picture of being stuck in the mud multiple times in multiple vehicles, but there's been this sense continually through lockdown. If there's one thing, and, and people are always saying, well, what's God saying to you? It's coming through this season with this conviction and with this passion that we need him more than we've ever needed him before as we've launched into 2021 hoping that it was going to be better than 2020 i think many people were ready to to say goodbye to that year and in some ways it just seems to find new ways to become harder and more difficult and challenging from legislation early in the in the year that was introduced making it illegal to hold biblical views on sexuality and morality through to pandemics and vaccines and you name it. We've pretty much covered every sort of possible issue and the fear and the confusion and everything else. And here's the thing that resonates in my heart. We don't just need human earthly answers to the problems that are around us. We need what only he can bring. And I pray that he brings all us back to that place where we recognize our need. Now, here's the encouragement. Not only can we read this story and recognize our need, I believe we can read this story and realize the possibility. I've heard it said, you know, we shouldn't talk too much about revival because it's, it's not always about the revival and the signs and the wonders. And Now, that's, that's true. That is, that is true. There's times where the Lord's hand is evidently, as it was in Paul's life, it was... He, you know, he was at work, and in two years, the whole region hears about the gospel, signs, wonders, miracles, the whole, the whole deal. There's other times, as Paul found, where he's stuck in a prison cell. I mean, the good news is it was actually in the prison cell that he had, if you like, his longest-term impact. It was there that he wrote his letters, his letters that 2,000 years later, the Lord uses in mighty ways to encourage people. There's never a season where God's not working, but there's always seasons that uh, are different from one another. But I use this, as we said, it's not this, the book of Acts is not all prescriptive or all descriptive. It's not saying, and I'm not preaching, that if we just follow some formula, we're going to see a mighty revival. 
But I am trying to stir our hearts as we recognize our need to realize the possibility. And the possibility is this, that he is in the reviving business. That all the way through Scripture, we've seen God come and revive his people. He raises up prophets. He raises up kings. He raises up men and women who would press forward and see and call to conviction and and operate in, in whatever it is that he calls them to do. He is in the reviving business. He says in Isaiah 57, he said, I'm the God who inhabits eternity. I'm the God who comes to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite, those who would be humbly before him. All the way through church history, not just in the book of Acts, we've seen God come in his moments in times and places and bring revival. And many of us, myself included, we love, a lot lot of people have done work documenting some of these great revivals. We could talk about the Welsh revival. I've mentioned that, the Azusa Street revival. I came across this week just a, it's actually an article from the Gospel Coalition website talking about a revival in North Korea in 1900s, one I hadn't come across. But this mighty move of God where a small group of missionaries had been praying and seeking an outbreak in what at that time was a very hard, resistant area to the gospel. And one Presbyterian missionary by the name of William Blair, it said he turned up and preached to a room of, of North Korean men, focusing on their need to turn away from the traditional hatred of the Japanese people. And an eyewitness here account we have preserved. And as one missionary described it, it was like the sound of, of a mighty wash, rushing wind, a, a harmony of sound and spirit mingling together. Souls moved with this impulse of prayer. It, it, they said it sounded like many waters coming and one by one these men repented and turned and put faith in Christ and repented of their sins and it broke something in that area. They saw a mighty revival for the next few years that turned North Korea into a hub of Christianity for the next decade or so to come. I don't know if you knew about that one. We could talk about the, the Jesus People movement in the 1970s. You know, Wimber, Vineyard, Toronto, that we've personally been involved in, Pensacola, these times where the Spirit of God moves. He is a miracle-working God. That's what we have sung. And it's not a formula. It doesn't look the same, but there is this undeniable presence and power of God, often at work in the most unlikely of places. I mean, there's accounts that I, I hear weekly, certainly monthly, often weekly, of incredible things that God's doing in the Middle East, in completely shut down nations to the gospel, sovereignly coming through and bringing his power and presence and the evidence and the outworking of what we might call revival in the lives of those who would turn to him. Now, I, I want us to land here. So we, we have talked often as we've gone through this particular book about the preaching of the gospel and Paul's undeniable commitment to proclaiming the message. The message matters. That was the commission, go into all the world. And so I don't want us to, to, to think in any way this is a, an either or, because sometimes it is. Either we've got to be signs and wonders and revival and healings and miracles, or we've got to be biblically based, you know, doctrinal Christians. It's not either or, it's both and. And my message and my stirring this morning for us is we've talked about 
the beauty of the gospel, the power of the, the message, the important of, importance of, of doctrine and being doctrinally correct. And I want to stir our hearts. And that's important. We don't want to lose that about our need for revival, to recognize our need, but to realize the possibility. Not so that we can have some emotional experience, certainly not so we can sell trinkets and have private jets and whatever other atrocity we might do in the name of Christ, but so that the beauty of Christ would be seen, so that the power of his gospel would be proclaimed, so that multitudes would see him for who he is. So I want us to remember our need, to recognize the possibility, and number three, really quickly, to respond readily. To respond readily. What is our response? G. Campbell Morgan, an English preacher from a century ago, he said this, we cannot manufacture revival as if we could. It's not up to us to somehow manufacture it, to produce it. But we can, he says, set our sails to catch the wind from heaven when God chooses to blow upon his people again. You know, every revival that I've ever come across has always had, as a precursor to God doing and moving, accomplishing his desire, there was hungry hearts, there was people who knew what they needed, as even Paul did in Ephesians. He's like, guys, something's missing. It's the Holy Spirit. There's got to be a recalibration. Sometimes it's quick. Sometimes you know, the, the Toronto movement, I was talking with Peter Thompson this week, just sharing some stories of, of revival. And he said, you know, the, the work of the Spirit that the Lord did in Toronto, there was a group of faithful prayers a hundred years before the Lord did that, that were committed to pray for revival in that area of the world. Whether it's next week, whether it's a hundred years, that's what I'm trying to say. Will we grab a hold and respond to what God is saying to us? Recognizing our need of him, realizing that that is who he is. Daring to believe that he could do something in our city, in our nation, in the lives of those who would call upon his name. And that we would ask him, what is it, Lord, that we need to do to hoist the sails? Maybe it is to press in in prayer. Maybe there's this baggage around that we know we've got to, to deal with and we get Ali to come and play, it'd be great. Maybe, maybe it is just allowing the Lord to stir our hearts again that he is the God of the impossible, that we too would, would come remembering our need, recognizing that that is his Desire, I believe even more than it's our desire, to move, to draw those whom he had paid the ultimate price for to himself. To bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring fresh life and fresh joy. And that we would respond, simply asking that question, well, Lord, how is it today that we can posture ourselves? We're not trying to work something up, we're not trying to manufacture but we are like that little sailboat. We're out there, we're saying, Lord, we, we can do nothing without you. But here we are, we're hoisting the sail. You come and do whatever you desire to do. And we will re respond readily to that which you call us to do. Can we pray this morning? So, Father, I thank you for this account in the book of Acts. I thank you for the encouragement that 
the whole book, but particularly this account of what you did so many years ago in that part of the world. Thank you for how that inspires me, that encourages me, that propels me forward. And Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us this morning, for the few of us here in the room, for others gathered wherever they are, that there would be again a fresh stirring in our heart, a fresh remembering and recognizing of our need of you in our lives personally, for personal revival, of our need for you in in this church. How we need your revival, Lord. We desperately need you. Of how much we need you in our city and our nation in all the issues that we've faced in the last few years and the, the paths that we're on towards anything but godliness. To remember, though, Lord, at the same time that nothing is too hard for you. You're the God who comes breaking through. You're the God who makes a way where there is no way. And I pray that as we remember our need and as we recognize who it is that you are, that there would be something for each one of us that you speak to us and encouraging us to respond, to reposition, not working something up, but saying, Lord, here am I, send me. Here, here, here am I. Here we are, Lord. Just a few people. Here we are, this church, just a few hundred. Here we are as, as a nation. Lord, do whatever you desire to do. We're hoisting the sail. And we're saying, come Holy Spirit, like a mighty wind. Come and fill the sail. Come and propel us into all that you have for us. As we come out of lockdown, as we move in from this season into the next, Lord, I, I, I believe and you've just been speaking to me uh, about the picture of how you called Peter. And that it's a time of, as you, you told him, just casting it on the other side of moving from the efforts and all that we could bring to the table and and seeing nothing or very little, fishing all night, to those moments where you say, no, just throw it the other side. And instantly there's such a a haul and an ingathering that they've got to call other boats to come and help them. And Lord, I I pray that we would see that. We'd, We'd have that willingness as your people to listen for your voice. What is it that you're saying to us? Not just going back to the same means and methods and staying up all night and having nothing to show for it, but listening for your voice and responding. And I pray that we would see a revival. I pray that we would see an ingathering of those whom you've paid, your precious blood was shed for. Lord, I pray that we would see signs and wonders and miracles that in, in our midst, the, the lame would be leaping with joy, that the, the barren woman would be singing, that the blind eyes would be open, that the, the dead man, look, there's Lazarus. He's the guy who was dead in the tomb and he's walking amongst us. Not for the sake of signs and wonders in and of themselves, but that the world would see the beauty of who you are, be captured by the reality of a love that sets them free. Stir our hearts, Lord. Let us not be passive. Do what you need to do. Let it start with us. Let your kingdom come, we pray. Let your will be done. In your wonderful, matchless, mighty name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.